You're listening to the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcast. On December 19th, 2018, President Trump announced a sudden withdrawal of all U.S. forces from Syria, where they have been involved in combat operations against the Islamic State. The next day, in protest of the decision, Secretary of Defense James Mattis, a former Marine Corps four-star general widely viewed as a stable force in a chaotic administration, submitted his letter of resignation. Just a few weeks later, National Security Advisor John Bolton appeared to roll back the president's original Syria announcement. The U.S. pullout from Syria would not be immediate. Amidst the cabinet turnover and policy confusion, how has the landscape of U.S. civil-military affairs changed? What consequences does the Syria withdrawal have for our military and for our relations with other countries? What will be Mattis' legacy as secretary? And have events of the past two months contributed to further politicization of the military? On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against Al-Qaeda terrorist training camps. We must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence by the military-industrial complex. U.S. warships and planes launched the opening salvo of Operation Iraqi Freedom. After years of devastating cuts, we're now rebuilding our military like we never have before. Welcome back to Thank You For Your Service, a hard look at American civil military affairs from the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts. I'm Nick Pereso. And I'm Thomas Krasnation. The past two or three months have been pretty hectic, especially for national security, foreign policy, and civil military affairs. The nation's attention has been fixed on events and decisions with serious civil military implications. Joining us today on the podcast is Kevin Wang. Kevin is a lecturer at the Committee on International Relations at the University of Chicago, where he researches civil military relations, patterns of state-sponsored political violence, and Chinese politics. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you for having me. Kevin, um, before we get started, I was just kind of wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you started studying national security policy and civil military relations and the politics of militaries. Well. I entered the um, University of Chicago as a grad student in 2011, and my, my original research interests were focused mostly on what I guess we could generally call great power politics, so powerful countries going up against other powerful countries, war, violence, those sorts of uh, activities. But there was always something kind of impersonal about the way that I think a lot of the early series that I studied tried to explain international politics, and particularly the, the conduct of foreign policy. Uh, and so in around 2012, I, I took a class with one of the professors in the Department of Political Science here, Paul Stanland, uh, which was about civil military politics. I think the, the title was Militaries and Politics or something similar. And as you can probably imagine, that was a bit of an eye-opening experience for me. It really kind of, it really kind of exposed me to this literature that I had, I had no idea it existed, to be perfectly blunt. And so basically, I reoriented my entire dissertation project, my research interests, to civil-military relations, and I uh, haven't looked back since. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Kevin. Last month, the dramatic resignation of James Mattis from his post as Secretary of Defense garnered a massive amount of media attention. But in order to understand this event, we should take a look at the specific foreign policy debate that led to it. U.S. troops have been deployed to Syria since 2014 in support of opposition forces in the Syrian civil war. U.S. goals there have been primarily to combat ISIS in the region and to counter Russian and Iranian influence. 
When President Trump announced in December that ISIS has been defeated and that he would move to withdraw U.S. troops within 30 days, he provoked a renewed national debate over sustained American engagement in Syria and the Middle East more generally. Now, a lot of members of the national security establishment have come out uh, vigorously against their withdrawal of forces. Um, in an article for the New York Times, David Sanger, who's a national security correspondent and a senior writer there at the Times, talks about how the president's view of the military is contrarian to established foreign policy perspectives. Uh, he writes that the lessons that many in the Pentagon and the intelligence agencies learned in the post 9-11 era that deployed forces are key to stopping terrorists before they reach American shores and vital to maintaining the alliances that keep the world safe never resonated with Mr. Trump. Um, so he really gets at this established worldview of foreign policy that it's necessary to maintain your alliances and it's necessary to kind of keep those troops abroad in that forever war in order to keep terrorism at bay and keep it over there. The pullout from Syria has also been defended from some unexpected places. Andrew Sullivan, who's a liberal political commentator and editor at the Daily Intelligencer, wrote an article titled, The Establishment Will Never Say No to a War. He talks about how the panic surrounding this pullout is overstated. This withdrawal is long past due. The wars in the Middle East are unwinnable. Americans have wanted to get out for a number of years now, but the national security establishment keeps pulling us back in. At one point, Sullivan writes, there comes a point when a president has to say no to the neo-imperial blob, to cut bait in wars that have become ends in themselves, generating the very problems they were launched to resolve. There's never a good time to do this. There wasn't in Vietnam, and there isn't in Afghanistan and the Middle East. Sometimes you just have to do it. Kevin, what are your thoughts on the foreign policy implications of the pullout? So I basically view this debate as sort of a recurrence of an ongoing debate that we've had for a good portion of the United States' this history, uh, where you see sort of this relitigation of very similar talking points between these two sides, I guess we can generally call them the, the pro-intervention side and the anti-intervention side. And I don't see really anything changing with that debate. Yes, it's occurring under Donald Trump, but a lot of these talking points are not particularly new, uh, so to speak. So the pro-interventionist sort of talking points you hear a lot. They say things like, well, this is bad for the United States credibility. This surrenders a geopolitical initiative to our enemies. It's abandoning our commitments to our allies and so on and so forth. And then you've got the counterpoint, which is, well, you know, these interventions are expensive, it's wasteful spending, there's no clear end in sight, and we are seeing this very problematic exaggeration of a lot of the strategic imperatives of continuous intervention. And looking at debates over, say, the United States military intervention into Iraq, to Afghanistan, to, to, to well, even to Libya and Vietnam even further, these are basically the same points that are brought up over and over and over again. So in that sense, putting Trump's Syria policy into context, there's not a whole lot new in terms of the substance that's going on here. There are two ways, however, in which I can sort of think of how Trump might be unique in, in the present-day context. So the first is what I sort of see as the impromptu character of the Trump administration's decision-making process. Uh, that whiplash, I think, is, is kind of new to recent memory. The second is... You can compound this with the problem of the Syria pullout's potentially negative implications for uh, what we could call the civil-military consensus building 
of, of US foreign policy and how they might sort of affect the United States policy in the future. And so if it were just one of those things in isolation, I think maybe this wouldn't be that big of a deal. But the fact that it's both at once uh, under the Trump administration is problematic, to use a term that academics just love to use. <laughs> so that brings us to another commentary that was written over this period by Alice Hunt Friend, who is a senior fellow at the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic International Studies. And in the Washington Post, she wrote this article entitled, This is the One Norm Trump Didn't Break uh, When He Pulled Out of Syria. He, she says that the president deserves credit for involving himself in military affairs and for asserting an important norm, which is civilian control of the military. Kevin, if you had a chance to read that article, do you agree with her analysis? And how do you think this relates to what we have regarded in the United States for a long time as the classic theory of civil-military relations? It is very, it's somewhat amusing trying, seeing this article and comparing it to a lot of the early think pieces that came out during the early years of the Trump administration with the appointment of men like H.R. McMaster, John Kelly, James Mattis, uh, because there was a lot of hand-wringing over whether or not the appointments of these men would be a sign of weakened civilian control. And now that McMaster, Kelly, and now Mattis are gone, uh, the hand-wringing has sort of moved on. The concern is no longer about whether or not civilian control is being weakened, but whether or not the generals are no longer around to play the role of the adults in the room. All of which is ultimately to say that I, I am more in agreement with Alice Friend's analysis than I am with some of the more alarmist takes that I've read. I think that civilian control remains relatively robust. You don't sort of see Trump uh, engaging in what in violations of what I guess Samuel Huntington would call the, the military sphere of competence, right? He, he's not sort of reaching deep into the officer corps and deciding which military personnel he wants to promote and which ones he doesn't want to promote, right? He's, he's not trying to micromanage or even reform the, the standard operating procedures of the military at large. Now, that being said, there are two things that, if they were to happen, would cause me to backtrack from my current position the first is, if we start actually seeing active duty officers saying no outright to the president, uh, that would be of huge concern. The second, and I think sort of the more realistic concern, is what we could call the military shirking its duties to the president. So right now, with all that's going on with James Mattis and with previously Kelly McMaster, these are sort of the replacement of top-level administration officials. But if we go lower in the bureaucracy, if you look at sort of like mid-level, career-level military officers, the active duty service members who are still serving, if we start seeing delays in the implementation of the president's will, if we sort of see willful ignorance of a lot of the orders that Donald Trump is sort of sending downwards, that would be another sign that civilian control is being undermined or is less secure than we originally thought. So this kind of civil military discussion uh, about the president uh, asserting um, his civilian control of the military, right, that brings us to December 19th when he finally announced the withdrawal of the troops. And according to news reports, Secretary Mattis went to the White House to try and change the president's mind. And then this happened. This is an NBC News special report. Here's Lester Holt. 
Good day from Los Angeles, everyone. We're coming on the air with breaking news. Secretary of Defense James Mattis, the man President Trump once called one of his generals, is resigning. The president tweeted moments ago that Mattis was retiring, but Mattis's letter to the president said he was leaving so the president could have a defense secretary whose views were more aligned with his. While much of the attention on Mattis's resignation letter focused on his disagreement with the president, it's important to remember that by resigning, he was reinforcing another importance of a military norm. The president has a right to have a secretary of defense who shares his views. Despite that, there was a lot of concern over Mattis's departure. His decision to resign in protest of a foreign policy move led to some extremely dire reactions. People are, might be so numb to this, and some of us are so numb. I can't underscore how serious things are right now. Any one of the things that happened today would be written into the history of any other modern presidency as one of its worst days or the start of the end. Senator Chris Murphy, the Democrat from Connecticut, said, a secretary of defense quitting over a public disagreement with a president whose foreign policy he believes to be off the rails is a national security crisis. The Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, told CNN that she was sad and shaken about the resignation. Our troops look to Se Secretary Mattis as a leader, and now he is going to be leaving them. Republican Senator Marco Rubio said that the resignation made it abundantly clear that we are headed towards a series of grave policy errors which will endanger our nation, damage our alliances, and empower our adversaries. There are even similar reactions abroad. Mattis resigning, and in this form, without, in this letter, you would notice not one word of praise. Norbert Rotkin, chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee in the German parliament, said Mattis was the last man standing for what had been U.S. foreign policy since World War II. Uh, there was even alarm in countries identified as U.S. adversaries in Mattis's letter. Yua Gong, a retired People's Liberation Army colonel and military commentator in Beijing, said even though toward us he was tough and vexing, the Chinese military felt assured dealing with this type of professional military man. Kevin, what was the reaction to Mattis's resignation? Well, I, I certainly wasn't happy to see him go, and not necessarily because of my concerns about what this means for civil military affairs, but more in terms of the high turnover rate of top-level administration officials really doesn't speak well to how this administration is conducting its business or its affairs, and it really doesn't look good to our allies. Now, in regards to the future of the United States' uh, policy in Syria, without sort of forwarding my own perspective on that debate, I do think that if we want informed policy decisions to be made, it's really important to have advisors who are really willing to honestly present opposing viewpoints, who are not interested in sort of playing the role of the yes man. And with Mattis leaving, I don't see many advisors that are remaining that are willing to play that role. Now, that, that being said, anyone who, who claims that the United States' civil military relations is this 240-year-old narrative of harmonious consensus building is... Uh, is wrong, uh, to be blunt. Uh, military men and women have always butted up against civilian pol politicians and policymakers, and James Mattis is no exception to that trend. We also need to keep in mind the context that James Mattis was the Secretary of Defense. He was not the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. 
uh, I would be far more concerned if a member of the Joint Chiefs resigned in protest of the president, because that would signify a far more toxic relationship between the president and the military as well. Hi, this is Jason Zukis, the host of Have You Heard? The UC3P News Quiz, a podcast where we quiz University of Chicago students on recent entertaining news stories. You can find us on any podcast platform by searching for Have You Heard? UC3P and can find out more about our upcoming live shows at facebook.com slash hyhnewsquiz. Thanks for listening. We are going to appoint Mad Dog Mattis as our Secretary of Defense. Mad Dog, he's great. From the very beginning of the Trump administration, Secretary James Mattis was afforded an unusually high level of respect from across the political spectrum. Mattis is a retired four-star Marine Corps general. From 2010 to 2013, he served as the commander of US Central Command, which oversees operations in North Africa and the Middle East. He gained some attention when he was relieved of that position months earlier than expected due to his disagreement with the Obama administration over Iran. When he was nominated as Secretary of Defense, Mattis had to get a waiver from Congress to be approved. Federal law requires a SecDef to be out of the military for at least seven years before taking the position. Mattis had only been out for three. Even still, his nomination was overwhelmingly approved, with only one senator voting against him. His approach to the job was unique and reflective of his military mindset, in that he seemed to consider serving in the administration as a duty. He's quoted as saying, when a president of the United States asks you to do something, I don't care if it's Republican or Democrat, we all have an obligation to serve. That's all there is to it, and so you serve. So I think you have both brought up a very important point, which is there is the image of James Mattis as the military man, and then there is the image of James Mattis as Secretary of Defense. And the Secretary of Defense, which we typically categorize as a civilian role, uh, is typically occupied by, by other civilian policymakers, which is not to say that we haven't had Secretaries of Defense who have not had military experience. Uh, but James Mattis is certainly unusual in the sense that because he is such a military man, at least in the sense that we perceive him to be, that sort of dominates the fact that he is, at the end of the day, occupying a civilian role. So when he resigns, it is not just some random civilian policymaker resigning, which is kind of the formal understanding of this case. This is James Mattis, the military man, resigning, which is why I feel a lot of the concerns of the civil military relations are now being brought up, even though it doesn't actually seem uh, from a very, very abstract perspective that the resignation of the Secretary of Defense is all that problematic in terms of undermining uh, civil military affairs in the United States. I think it's really interesting how you bring up the fact that he has this one image of him as a, as a military man, and then he has this other image of him as Secretary of Defense. And those two, they should be independent of one another. But, you know, Matt is who was famous when he was a four-star general, was known uh, by monikers like Mad Dog Mattis or Chaos or the Warrior Monk. And those nicknames continued to be used to refer to him 
uh, even when he transitioned into the Secretary of Defense role. In that regard, he was bringing along these kind of names that really embodied who he was as a military man still into the civilian position. In addition to those, there were a lot of policymakers, including the president, who often referred to him as General Mattis, even when he was in his position as Secretary of Defense. They would say that, you know, General Mattis was making such and such policy decision, or General Mattis. He was even referred to, to that way in the news sometimes. Right. It's, it's strange how when you retire from the military and you hang up the uniform, that doesn't necessarily mean that you are no longer a military man or a military woman. There's this very formal theoretical distinction between what it means for a military person to get involved in politics. And if we go by the very strict Samuel Huntington sort of conception, it's active duty military officers should not get involved in politics, which is not what James Mattis did, right? He was very much retired at the time. The same applies for John Kelly. But that military experience and the image that we have of them as military officials never really goes away, even though that they are actually retired, right? As an academic, I tend to prioritize sort of the office. And I say, this is a civilian office, and the person inhabiting it has resigned. So I don't see much of an issue here for civil-military relations. But I fully am sympathetic to the idea that, well, yes, if we look at the people who occupy these offices and the military experience that they sort of bring to the table, this is a concern for civil-military relations. And I'm not quite sure how we adjudicate that at this stage. Mm -hmm. Given the concern that a large portion of the population tends to view someone like Mattis as a military man, regardless of his retirement status, do you believe that it is advisable for him to be taking a civilian cabinet role? I'm not opposed to it in principle, but from a practical perspective, and this is not the fault of the men and women who join the military, but even when you retire from the military, particularly if you've had a distinguished military career like James Mattis has, you are never really going to be able to shed that uniform. Even if you, you, you deliberately try and avoid using your military credentials, other people are still going to view you as a military person. right? So you can have a, a military man or a military woman uh, who is genuinely trying to avoid uh, taking on the role Trying to avoid promoting themselves. Right, yeah. right. So, so, so you can have a, a, a former military official who's trying to avoid taking on the role of, well, a military official, particularly in the role of civilian politics. But I don't see how either the press or other politicians or the American public are going to view them differently, uh, short of many, many years passing by. Maybe then their, their military reputation will have receded into the past. Uh, but, of course, that doesn't seem very, very fair. And there's obviously no sort of you know, law that says you have to wait 30 or 40 years after your military service before you can take on any important civilian role. I, I am sympathetic to the idea that James Mattis should be allowed to occupy the role of a civilian policymaker. But the practical realities of... I think just the way that American politics is structured and the way that we sort of view the, the men and women that have served in the armed forces makes it very difficult to have this very strict sort of Huntingtonian separation of the civilian and the military spheres. 
This discussion about the image of Jim Mattis uh, is also touched upon by Corey Shockey in an article she wrote for The Atlantic called The Quiet Integrity of James Mattis. Uh, you might remember Dr. Shockey from episode two of Thank You for Your Service. She is the Deputy Director General of the International Institute for Strategic Studies uh, and a co-editor of a book on Civ Mill with James Mattis himself. In that article, she touches on the resignation with two important points that Mattis's letter uh, one, defended the American foreign policy worldview of the past 70 years, that of liberal internationalism. And in addition to that, it also, two, recognized the president's right to have a cabinet that's going to advance his interests. She touches on the importance of the resignation letter, and then she also discusses Mattis's uh, career as Secretary of Defense and what his legacy is going to be. She kind of sums it up at the end by saying that Mattis attempted to appoint bipartisan defense experts in his department. He reached wide for counsel, built relationships on both sides of the congressional aisle, garnered the votes of 97 senators of last year's defense appropriations bill, and did well to protect the defense enterprise from politicization against overwhelming force. That will be his legacy. After Mattis's resignation, uh, Dr. Shockey wrote another article in the New York Times where she wrote that a lot of the president's political opponents, including herself, uh, heaved a huge sigh of relief at Mr. Mattis's nomination because they knew him as an intelligent and measured leader. But she writes, some among us on both sides of the political divide went further, anticipating that the recently retired general would save us from the president and his policies, um, basically imagining that Mr. Mattis would be willing to subvert American democracy in order to check what they see as a bad president. So by the end of the article, Shockey highlights that the president has the right to be wrong and the Department of Defense has the obligation to carry out lawful orders rather than set themselves up as uniquely virtuous arbiters of the good of the country. I really like what she wrote here, that the Trump administration is providing a welcome reminder for us that our veterans, like the rest of our fellow Americans, are a diverse bunch. Perhaps this exposure, after decades in which the military leadership was largely left in the wings of public policy debates, will help Americans the overwhelming number of whom have no military experience, develop a better sense of what the military can and cannot do in a democracy. Just to close it out, the end of 2018 gave us quite the news cycle for civil-military relations, and it's been a good opportunity for us to re-emphasize some of the most important civil-mil norms, like civilian control of the military. This conversation also opens up some doors to talk more about the politicization of the military. So join us next time on Thank You For Your Service, where we'll do a deep dive into the topic of military politicization and what it could mean for civil-military relations. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, so you'll get our next episode as soon as it's released. And please connect with us on Twitter at TYFYS underscore podcast. We're eager to hear your feedback about the podcast and the topics that we cover. This podcast is produced by Haz Yano, Ashwarya Kumar, and Mary Martha McClay. Our creative consultant is Sarah Claudie, and our publisher is David Raban. This podcast is a production of the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcast and is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of Defense or any other military entity. I'm Thomas Krasnation. And I'm Nick Pereso. See you next time.